Let's pray. Father, we pray that even as we have heard your word read and even as we have sung and now your word will be proclaimed, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. We pray that on this Good Friday that you would help us to have him and his death for us magnified in our minds and our hearts so that he alone will receive the glory for our time together tonight. We pray, Father, that He would be lifted up even as we are made low, and that He would be lifted up here tonight through the preaching of Your Word, that You might draw all people to Yourself. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. If your Bible, join me in Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27. Last night, Pastor Jason brought us into the events of Holy Week. He reminded us of how Jesus was focused on fulfilling God's will, God's plan and His purposes, not just for the life of Christ, but for the life of Christ that affects all humanity. And how He was focused on and even determined to do God's will even in the face of betrayal and disappointment at His disciples' actions. Tonight we move from the sorrowful, prayerful determination in the garden to the climax of Jesus' faithful life, namely His death on the cross. In many ways, the cross is the defining moment of all of Christianity. Here the hopes of all of Israel and the old covenant for salvation were achieved in a surprising and far greater way than anyone had expected, not just for Israel, but again for all humanity. In this chapter, Matthew does not give us an exhaustive theology of salvation or an exhaustive theology of the cross. Instead, he paints in broad strokes and yet with enough color and texture to help us see how the cross of Christ stands as the fulfillment of God's promises since the beginning of time itself and helps us to see the the benefits of Christ on the cross. We'll begin reading tonight. Um, after, or excuse me, we'll begin reading about Jesus' death after he has been arrested by the Jewish authorities and handed over to the Roman governor Pilate. So I would encourage you to stand with me. We'll be Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called called Barabbas. 
So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with the right, that righteous man, for I have suffered much of him because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who was called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. When the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they had gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So all the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran at once and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. You may be seated. This evening we don't have time to 
deal extensively with all of these verses. We read them for context, but what we want to do is focus on verses 51 through 54. And from here, we want to meditate on the significance of Jesus' cross, specifically seeing four aspects of the salvation that Jesus secured there, four aspects that Matthew wants to highlight in his gospel. First, Matthew shows us that the cross brings new access to God. The cross brings new access to God. At the moment of Jesus' death, we read that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And if you remember the Old Testament or you've been here for uh, Pastor Greg's sermons with Leviticus, we know this curtain is the, the one in the Jewish temple that was standing at that time. Uh, after the tabernacle, there had been a few temples built, rebuilt, and expanded over the years, and yet all of them had the same basic design, which was given by God outlined, uh, outlined in the law. And it included divisions within the temple and its courtyard. And each of these divisions, these sections, indicated a closer, being a closer, more closely intimate with the presence of God. Every Israelite could only approach so far as the outer court, and then only the priest could continue further into the holy place. After that, it was into the very heart of the temple, where only once a year, the high priest would enter into that most holy place, the holy of holies, into the very presence of God to offer a blood sacrifice for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. All of this God gave to answer this question, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? The answer was the temple. For the Lord was a holy God. He is separate from us even today in glory and purity. In fact, He is so holy that to, to approach Him without the appropriate precautions being taken would have meant the sinner was wiped out in His presence. For we are not holy. We are wholly unlike Him. We are full of sin and corruption while He light and righteousness. And so the whole temple system was designed to allow a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people, to protect them from God's holiness. And so access to God was then mediated through the priesthood. Someone else needed to go between you and God to make atonement for your sins. But now, now Jesus has come. And the book of Hebrews calls him the better high priest who offers not an animal but himself for his people. And upon his death, that curtain separating the most holy place from the holy place split in two, exposing now the dwelling place of God to everyone, not just the high priest once a year. Why, why would God do this? This wasn't an accident. That didn't just happen. At the moment of Christ's death, God is the one who split this curtain for all to see. It was to show that Christ was providing a new and better way. So when we desire to come to God today, we do not need sacrifices, we do not need temples, and we need no priests. Now Christ is the sacrifice, perfect, lasting atonement coming through Him and His one singular death. He is the priest, the perfect priest, the only priest that we need, the one perfect mediator between God and man because He Himself is God and man. Moreover, Christ is the temple, the very dwelling place of God among humanity. And so all of this gives us a new sense of intimacy with the Lord. Listen to these verses from Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a, new, have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Through the death of Christ, we now have direct access to God himself. No more priests, no more temples, just Jesus who brings us into fellowship with the living God, his heavenly Father, and now our heavenly Father. But how do we come to have that kind of assurance of faith and clean hearts that are a part of this fellowship? What changed so that now God could dwell in a more intimate way with his people? This brings us to the second thing that Matthew highlights, namely this, that the cross brought judgment on sin. The cross brought judgment on sin. In addition to the curtain in the temple being torn in two, Matthew tells us that the earth shook and the rocks were split. And that may just seem like something that happens unless we're very familiar with the, the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, where this kind of thing is uh, very much symbolic of God's judgment. You can look at Psalm 18 and Isaiah 5 and Nahum chapter 1 this evening or tomorrow, and you can see this kind of language of the earth shaking and rock splitting to denote God's anger at the sins of his people or the nations. You see films or television that try to depict Jesus' life and particularly his death on the cross, one of the things that most of them will dwell on, uh, particularly films like The Passion, is the, the physical brutality that Jesus went through during his crucifixion. And no doubt that experience was indeed a brutal one. And for those of us who have never seen a live crucifixion, it was not something that happens all the time in this day and age and in this country, it can be helpful to get a grip on the historic reality that the early Christians would have known so well. But let us never, never think the physical suffering that Jesus endured compared to what was happening spiritually to him from noon until three on that cross. Earlier in the chapter, Matthew says, from the sixth hour, that's our noon, there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, 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 that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from the Psalms. Why did Jesus feel forsaken by his own father? Because for those three hours as darkness covered the, the land, another symbol of God's judgment, the only perfect man who had ever lived the only person born into this world who deserved nothing but praise and glory and honor and blessing from God instead endured the fullness of his wrath against the sins of his people. Movies don't emphasize this because it's not something that you can capture on film. There is no way to accurately convey the sheer horror of being the object of God's wrath. But it's something that you can describe. And that's what the Bible does. At least it describes it in terms of what is being accomplished and how it's being accomplished. Remember how the curtain was torn in two, effectively ending that temple system. Well, the New Testament goes on to describe what is happening at the cross. Romans 3 says that we are forgiven by God's grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies one's wrath. The Bible says that Jesus was the propitiation 
for our sins with God the Father. God was full of wrath towards us, towards his people, but Jesus offered himself to appease that wrath. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. We deserve an eternity in hell for our rebellion against God. But in his grace and love, God sent his son to endure that for us on the cross. Colossians 2 says, You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do that, Paul? The next verse. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Just as God promised through the prophet Isaiah in the passage that Pastor Rick read for us this evening, Christ died for sinners. He was their substitute taking God's wrath for their sin. He suffered the judgment that they deserved. Christ died so that those who deserve hell could receive heaven instead. Christ died so that guilty people might find forgiveness and even to be declared righteous before God. For many of you, I imagine this message is very familiar, though others of you may be here and you're hearing it for the first time. Either way, how should we respond to this message? This leads to the third aspect that we see Matthew highlighting, and that is this. The cross produces saving faith. The cross is meant to produce saving faith. Look at how Matthew ends this section. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. The religious leaders of the day had missed it. The Pharisees had missed it. The scribes had missed it. The nation of Israel at large had missed it. Jesus' own people the kind of people who knew the Bible, who knew the Scriptures, saw his life, of, life and ministry and rejected him as the Messiah. We, we don't want you to be the Christ. We refuse to see that you are the Christ. For the, for the, they knew that what he did was, they spread the lie that it was by the power of the devil, and yet Jesus said, that doesn't make any sense. You know that the devil is not going to work against the devil. I am from God. And they chose not to believe. In fact, even earlier in our passage when they released Barabbas, a self-styled Messiah, a military man, we would even call him a terrorist, and they, who had ruthlessly murdered Romans, but maybe even his own people in order to accomplish the purpose of liberating the Jews from their oppressors in Rome. They said, yeah, we'll take that guy. That's the guy that we want released, not Jesus. Not Jesus. His people have missed it, but here is a Gentile centurion who understands that Jesus was more than just a man. He was the one who came in humility and obedience to his heavenly Father, the one who came in righteousness, dying for the unrighteous, satisfying God's wrath. He was more than just a man. He was God the Son in the flesh. And surely the centurion did not grasp all of that in that moment. But what he saw and what he grasped, he knew enough to know this was the Son of God. And so Matthew puts him in here to help us to see this is the appropriate response to the, the cross of Christ. Namely, faith. Faith. This time last year, my family was in Arizona taking in the grandeur of the Grand Canyon. 
Uh, I, I would encourage you, if you've never been, to, to take a vacation there, to spend some time there. It was an amazing experience seeing the work of God's power and providence on display. It was as beautiful and majestic as any work of art produced by human hands. But after a very long day basking in the canyon's glory, our family all got into the car, we got on the highway, we grabbed some quick dinner, and we headed back to the Airbnb, and that was it. We moved on to other things. We went on to Sedona and watching spring training with the Reds and all kinds of other things. That's, that, that's all we did. But that's not the cross. That's not the cross. The cross is not something that you can just stand back and admire and then move on from as if that's nice. It's not something that you can see and just shrug and say, so what? It's something that demands a response. It demands a life-changing response. It demands faith. Faith. It demands that all of us throw off the sinful things harming us and those around us and believe that our Creator God knows better for our life and deserves better from our life in the way that we have been living. It demands that we stop believing that good people, whoever they are, good people go to heaven. And that somehow we can measure up to some sense of goodness, some standard that God has. We need to abandon that way of thinking and believe Jesus is the only way of salvation, just as he and his disciples taught. The cross demands that we change our priorities and preferences and believe that following Jesus by faith is the greatest, most important calling in life. Paul says in his letter to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is, Jesus Christ came into the world, He lived, and He died, and He rose again. That is the grace of God that has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The cross demands the response of faith, and that faith is not a one-time thing. It's not a one and done. It is a lifelong living out of faith. You don't just believe once. Every morning you wake up believing in, trusting in, treasuring Jesus as your Savior and living like He is your King. But if you don't know the end of the story, if you don't know what happens in Matthew 28, you may be wondering, how do I live for a dead king? Well, this brings us to our final reality from the text that Matthew wants us to fix our eyes on here, and that is namely this, the cross gives hope of the resurrection. The cross gives hope of the resurrection. Listen again to verses 51 through 53. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That has got to be one of the strangest passages in the whole Bible, let alone the New Testament. I can remember being in high school and reading this for the first time in the back of a van coming back from a, a, a mission trip in Florida, and I just sat up and I was like, what is happening and how come no one has ever preached on this before? Probably because mysteries abound. Matthew is the only gospel writer that records it. He doesn't give us much information. Who were these people? How long were they around? 
Who did they appear to? What was the nature of their resurrection? Was it like a Lazarus or was it like Christ? We don't have all the answers, but here's what we do know. Matthew says that these people were the saints or the holy ones. That is, people who were probably well-known Old Testament believers. Notice, secondly, the order of things. Though the tombs broke open upon Jesus' death, As the earth quaked, it wasn't until Christ himself was raised back to life on the third day that these individuals were raised. Matthew says, coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And so even before, even before Matthew 28, which Pastor Greg is going to preach on on Sunday, Matthew is tipping his hand. Yes, Jesus died a real physical death. His corpse was wrapped up, perfumed, laid in a tomb. But he didn't stay dead. Though all appeared lost and hopeless as the promised Messiah, as those who followed him for three years thinking this is the man, was suddenly strung up on a cross and killed, this turned out to be God's plan to bring salvation, eternal salvation to all people. And the proof of this salvation is seen in the resurrection of Christ. A resurrection that sets the pattern for all who believe. He is, as Paul says, the first fruits of the resurrection. The the tomb split open, we're told, signaling that Christ himself has defeated death. Many, many years ago, there was a pastor named S.M. Lockridge at Calvary Baptist Church in California. And he preached a sermon called, It's Friday but Sunday's coming. You may have seen a YouTube clip being shared. First of all, just understand that's not Lockridge. That's somebody reading a portion of that sermon. The original sermon was much, much longer. And if you heard any of other Lockridge's sermons, you know he is not that tame in his presentation. But if you haven't heard that, I will tell you, throughout this sermon, Lockridge is reviewing the events surrounding the cross. He is highlighting the bleakness of the event, the utter sinfulness of those who put Jesus on the cross and the seeming hopelessness the disciples had at the death of their Messiah. And yet interspersed, he keeps repeating the words, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. So he'll say things like, Jesus was laying in the tomb. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. The disciples are scattered, grieving, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. The Romans are laughing. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. The women are weeping. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Today is Good Friday. And as we are thinking about the atoning death of Christ, there is a sense in which it is right to allow this to sit heavy on us. Too often I've seen Christians, and Friday is all about the resurrection. And we love the resurrection. Every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection, not just Easter. But it's okay sometimes to pause and to remember, we put Jesus on that cross. It was for our sin that he was hung there, that he endured the horrors of hell under God's judgment and wrath for those three hours. We cannot simply think only of the benefits of the cross, and not the agony of the one who died there for us. But we also cannot help but think of the cross and what is coming next, what was promised, and what happened as a real historical event. It is Friday, but Sunday's coming. 
And this coming Sunday, we will celebrate what those disciples first celebrated after the very first Good Friday, namely that Jesus did not stay in the grave. God's Holy One was not left to see corruption just as God had promised. Christ is risen as Savior and Lord. He rose with power for our justification with God. And so Matthew is here recounting this uh, strange event that God gave in His providence. And one day, a billion years in the future, we will say, hey, hey, we read about this. Matthew told us what in the world was happening. Who was it? What was it like? But for now, for now, we're simply content with Matthew telling us, Remember these heroes of the faith? He's writing to the original audience. Remember these heroes of the faith, the Old Testament saints? We, 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 tell, we raise our kids telling them about their great acts of faith in the Lord and what He did for them. Here they are. They're with us just for a little while. Christ has risen and He has led them out of the tombs as well that they might bear witness to us that He is risen. He is the eternal Son of Man, given an eternal kingdom, Savior for all who would look at Him. Though the Jews and the Romans mockingly called Jesus King, God vindicated and established Him as the true King over all things through His triumphant resurrection. Several years ago, D.A. Carson insightfully said this, thinking about how we perceive the world and what our needs are, what, what our goals are, what we, what we think is best. He said, if you're a Marxist, what you need are revolutionaries and de decent economists. If you are a psychologist, what you need is an army of counselors. If you think the root of all breakdown and disorder is medical, what you really need is large numbers of Mayo clinics. But if our first and most serious need is to be reconciled to God, a God who now stands over against us and pronounces death upon us because of our willfully chosen rebellion, then what we need the most, though we may have all these other derivative needs, is to be reconciled to Him. We need someone to save us. And tonight, Matthew has demonstrated that Jesus is that Savior. We've seen the power of the cross, and now we simply can't walk away. We will either reject him or we will trust him. Tonight, if God's spirit is calling you to faith, do not harden your heart against him, but trust Christ for the salvation of your sins. And if you have already answered that call, if you have been following in faith for years, like most of us here probably, then remember again, remember afresh, the offering of Christ for your sins. Feel anew the weight cost of his sacrifice for you. Behold again his glory at the cross. Let his love for you sweeten in your soul. Allow your love for him to deepen and bear fruit. Commit to live more faithfully to him, your risen king. Let's pray. Father, what love you have shown us. What great love you have poured out upon us to send your own Son. Not simply to be a conquering king, but to be a humble servant who experiences the terrifying wrath of your holiness, not because he's done anything wrong, but because we have again and again. And again, 
And what love for the Son to joyfully obey you and come into this world and put up with sinful humanity for his life of some 30 years only to then allow himself to be crucified, mocked, and bear that wrath. We are thankful even as we repent of our thankfulness because it pales in comparison to the gift that you have given to us. It is incomprehensible that you provided the suffering servant, one who would see and be satisfied because in obedience to you, he offered his life for us. The cost was high, but the benefits are so glorious to us. Forgiveness when we are guilty, death now made alive at enmity with you, but now reconciled as friends, sinful and yet declared righteous, orphaned and yet now brought into your family, made holy and righteous and one day glorified fully like our risen King. What a wonderful salvation, God, all secured through the cross. We pray, Father, that tonight, that for the first time, for the millionth time, that we will see and appreciate what you have done for us, and that we will follow Jesus in faith. We pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.